Okay, good evening everybody. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics and I'm very pleased to welcome you all to our discussion about the Labor Party. Um, well, it's obviously an exciting time for Labor supporters. It's, it's not just the unexpected outcome of the election but, but also the enthusiasm and elan that was on display just last week at the Labor Party conference and in such striking comparison, I think, to the Conservatives' conference just yesterday. But what we wanted to do today was to sort of look beyond that, in a sense, and um, ask where Labor is headed under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and, and what it should be doing next. And to do that, we've got, I think, a really very distinguished panel. I'm just going to introduce each of them, um, one after the other, starting at the far end, so we've got um, Steve Fisher, who's Associate Professor of Political Sociology at Oxford University and, as many of you will know, a widely recognised expert on um, elections. And he's got a whole long list of publications about voting behaviour, public opinion, turnout and uh, related issues. And I just especially want to thank him for coming to uh, London today because he broke his ankle a week and a half ago and nonetheless such is his commitment that he's, he's here today. So thank you very much, um, Steve, for going to that extra effort. Then next is, is Rachel Shabby. Um, she's an award-winning journalist and author. Um, she's contributed to a, really quite a list of outlets, The Times, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, um, and especially The Guardian, where she's a contributing writer. And she's written about a range of different subjects, some to do with um, the Middle East and other topics. But she's also, I think it's fair to say, become one of the leading commentators on the shift in progressive politics here in Britain. And we're very pleased to have you today. And then next to me is Stuart Wood, who's a Labor member of the House of Lords and also a fellow of Magdalen College Oxford, where he taught politics for many years. He worked for Gordon Brown, first in the Treasury, then at Number 10 Downing Street for 10 years. And then he was a key advisor when Ed Miliband was leader of the Labor Party from 2010 to 2015. And he too has numerous publications, especially in the area of political economy in Western Europe. So what we're going to do tonight is um, we're going to ask each of our speakers to talk for about 10 minutes. Um, setting out their answer to uh, our question. And then there's going to be a, a short period of chair-led discussion. That means I get to ask them questions. And then after that, we're going to turn it over to you and hopefully have a good chunk of time for questions and discussions from all of you. But before we do any of that, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our panel tonight? So... Um, Steve. Thank you. Um, <coughs> yeah, so I'm really playing for the Theresa May sympathy vote with a, both cough and broken leg uh, <laughs> today. Um, so thinking about what's next for Labour, I went back to read, uh, by chance, a column in The Economist, in the Badgett column from the beginning of February, uh, which speculated on the death of Labour and, uh, and the scenario painted there it started with Paul Nuttall winning the uh, Stoke by-election and ended with him becoming Prime Minister in 2030. Um, that now seems totally ridiculous and, um, uh, and implausible, but it did have a grain of truth in it um, 
in the sense that it was emphasising the risk to the Labour Party of losing uh, lots of white working-class Leave voters. And in 2017, they did indeed lose uh, lots of uh, white working-class Leave voters, particularly if you count the ones that they'd already lost in 2015 to UKIP, uh, and then they went over to the Tories this time. And you can think of that loss of the traditional working-class base uh, for Labour at this last election um, in the sort of long-run trajectory. Uh, People are probably already familiar uh, with the story about the decline in the working-class base for Labour, mostly as a result of the declining size of the working class. Um, Actually, the the working class was pretty consistently... um, uh, for the for Labour um, up to 1997, um, and then the Labour vote amongst the working class declined quite dramatically since then. Um, but it dropped, declined for different reasons at different elections, I think. And in the 2001 and 2005 election, it was rightly or wrongly a perception that uh, New Labour uh, were too centrist and not delivering for the working class. Uh, and the main response to that was um, abstention rather than shifting to other parties. In 2010, in the wake of the financial crisis and the Great Recession, uh, the Labour vote dropped most where unemployment went up most, and those were also the more working-class areas, and that dynamic contributed to a further weakening of the Labour vote amongst the working class, uh, both absolutely and, and relatively compared with the middle class. And also in 2010... Um, what we saw was that the rise of the BNP, such as it was, uh, came primarily at Labour's expense and primarily from low-education, white, working-class men. Um, And that showed a willingness of this group to um, cast an anti-immigration protest vote, uh, which they did big time uh, again in 2015, um, voting for UKIP, uh, which sucked up the BNP vote and some uh, more Labour and Conservative votes, Um, again from that particularly white, working-class, older male uh, demographic or uh, combinations of those factors. Now, in 2017, what happened was that uh, UKIP collapsed and uh, something like 78% of the UKIP vote um, from 2015 went to the Tories. Some returned to Labour um, and some abstained. Um, But what's more... A lot of the older white working-class voters who, did vo- who voted Labour in 2015 leave in 2016. They deserted disproportionately Labour in 2017 uh, for the Conservatives to help Theresa May deliver her vision for Brexit, um, which they cared about. Now, notice that the narrative about the declining and absolute relative support for Labour amongst the working-class um, is actually one that I drifted in from talking about the working class to talking about age and education. And as far as 2017 is concerned, age and education do the, uh, the main work. Um, uh, class and age and education are all correlated with working class people being, um, by, certainly by traditional definitions, older and, and less educated. Um, now, one of the key issues... Um, that's, I think, still in play in terms of the analysis of 2017 is is how much uh, there was anything going on with age and education which couldn't be explained by Remain voting. Um, It seems like the vast bulk of um, 
the tendency for Labour now to be much more the party of graduates and the young uh, and um, the Conservatives to be uh, the party of uh, uh, the less educated and the old um, is um, a lot to do with the fact that graduates and the young were much more Remain voters uh, and uh, the old and less educated were much more Leave voters. Um, but there was a bit to which um, you can say that uh, Labour managed to mobilise more young people uh, than you'd expect just on the basis of uh, the level of Remain vote uh, in 2016. Now, the other thing to point out is that given that the Labour Party conference was celebrating um, doing really well in the 2017 election, and I've just talk, been talking about how they've been mostly losing votes uh, uh, from their traditional working class base, um, they didn't actually lose votes net from their working class base. They just failed to gain. And they went up uh, pretty much amongst every socio-demographic group. It was just a question of how much. And one of the key issues is how much is that a general across-the-board increase in the popularity of Labour um, and how much of it was linked to um, uh, some kind of ideological or social-based politics. Um, and one thing you can seem, certainly say is that given that Labour vote went up amongst those who are right-wing as well as those who are left-wing, um, it seems very unlikely that it was a story of left-wing support um, and left-wing radicalisation of the Labour Party um, that accounted for quite the scale of, of um, uh, increase in the Labour vote um, since 2015 that we actually saw. Um, so to the extent that there was a general across-the-board uh, rise in Labour support, I think it's very important to try and unpick why that was. And um, the most likely explanation I can see is valence politics, um, simply Corbyn and Labour becoming much more popular while the Tories and Theresa May became much less popular during the campaign. Um, not being the Tories was a big part of Labour's success um, in this election. Um, and, it, cause it, and except in Scotland and some Conservative Lib Dem contests and a very small number of Plaid and Green contests, um, Labour were the only serious non-Tory party in town. Um, and the other thing we should notice about the um, uh, campaign is that that was a period in which the Corbyn critics remained quiet, um, which helped uh, Jeremy Corbyn set out his stall much more confidently. Um, and so I think there's a lot to say for James Forsyth's um, uh, thesis that um, the Labour campaign is largely uh, a product of Tory failure and Corbyn sceptics staying quiet. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's answer to the question of why he did really well is that the centre ground of British politics has moved to the left. Now, there's some truth in that. The trouble is it also had moved to the left in 2015, um, and it didn't seem to help Ed Miliband uh, terribly much. And um, the other thing, while much of the 2017 manifesto uh, was more left-wing uh, than in 2015, the things that were popular about it were already popular in 2015 um, and uh, the context had changed that made it the case that people were willing to vote for um, some more left-wing policies whilst not being so worried about deficit reduction as they had been in 2015. 
So again, the Tory campaign in 2015 uh, was one which, uh, and the, I'm here talking about the very long campaign, uh, so much of the politics of 2010 to 2015 was uh, about how you couldn't trust Labour having maxed out the nation's credit card. Um, that narrative on the Tory side uh, disappeared or became at least much weaker um, as this election was supposed to be much more about Brexit. Um, and that gave Labour some space and I think voters much more, became much more tolerant of voting, uh, open to voting uh, for more left-wing policies. The other thing to note about those left-wing policies is some of them were, because they embraced the idea of universalism, actually ones where there were goodies for everybody that disproportionately benefited the middle class, um, you know, especially tuition fees, I would say. And um, that is not terribly left-wing, in my view, um, particularly when there's no compensating clear commitment to reverse uh, benefit reductions for the bottom 20% uh, of the income distribution. Um, and nor were the public at large clamouring for benefit reductions uh, to be reversed as a top priority. If you think about the demands for nationalisation of water, energy and rail, um, it's not as though the public has got a renewed ideological uh, verve for nationalisation across the board. Um, people just are fed up with the quality of these services and how much they cost and willing to entertain uh, nationalisation as a solution. They just want better and lower cost services. Um, another putative explanation for Labour's um, success this time was that people were willing to vote for them because they had no chance of winning. Um, John Mellon and Chris Prosser have used a British election study uh, to show very clearly that the more chance you thought Labour had of winning, the more likely you were to vote Labour. It, people didn't vote for Labour because they had no chance, uh, thought they had no chance of winning. But nonetheless, 56% of Labour voters reported in the final week of the campaign uh, that they thought the Tories were more likely than not to get an overall majority. And it is hard to say how these people might have voted um, had they had different expectations. It's a big pool of Labour voters. And the most important thing about that kind of issue is, is what would have happened had... Labour policies come under more scrutiny, both from journalists and voters deliberating over them more carefully. Um, now, what that kind of analysis all shows, I think, in terms of what's next for Labour, is firstly that um, you can get changes in the social basis of voting for different reasons at different elections, even if it contributes to a long-run trend that's all in the same direction. Um, but the long-run trends don't necessarily need to continue, and things could change again next time. Um, but there is a consistent pattern across elections whereby if you convince the vast bulk of the population, the general population, to like you more and like your policies more, this is the valence politics argument, uh, then you tend to do better, uh, and parties that win uh, majorities tend to just be popular overall. Um, and that suggests um, that the best strategy uh, for Labour going forwards is, is just to try and become as popular as they can be. It sounds benign, <laughs> but um, uh, it has implications, I think. Um, I could expand on all of that, but I think I've already used up all my time. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll just move straight on to our next speaker, Rachel Shelby.
Um, so I'm going to talk about, um, you know, what Labour should do going forward. But I think, first of all, we need to just set the scene a little bit. And um, I have to say, it's, it's moving and an honour to, to sit here as part of the um, Ralph Miliband programme of lectures. And it's also impossible not to wonder what this lifelong socialist, this great intellectual and the author of so many uh, still relevant books about left-wing politics would have made of the Labour surge um, at the last election, what would he have made of what's happened since? Um, what would he have said about Labour reviving its fortunes, not as he had observed so many times with different, party, different Labour parties before, by compromising its values or by timidly diluting its principles, but um, by offering an unashamedly left-wing platform under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, um, and with it winning 40% share of the vote and just shy of 13 million voters. Um, just last year, Jeremy Corbyn spoke as part of this lecture series. Um, what a difference a year makes. He stood here and spoke about uh, how much he had learned from Ralph Miliband, um, but also back then, which was before the re referendum, um, now feels like a different political era. Back then, he spoke about a profound loss of trust in politics. He spoke about irresponsible governments that abdicate responsibility by um, pursuing privatization, by pursuing deregulation, and just through neglect. Um, he spoke about the need to rebuild uh, the politics of hope and the idea that collectively we can change things. Now, Ralph Miliband, in his book, Parliamentary Socialism, wrote about the Second World War and how it set the scene. Um, it set the conditions and the attitudes for the transformative Labour government um, that followed with Clement Attlee, the founders of the welfare state, um, comprehensive education, and, of course, the National Health Service. I'm not about to start comparing circumstances. I don't, like some Brexiteers-in-chief, think that Brexit is the blitz. Um, I don't think that you can compare the economic crash of 2008, which we are still feeling, uh, to a Second World War. Um, but there are parallels in the appetite for change, and that's what the Le Corbyn's Labour Party tapped into. Uh, you talk about making yourself popular I do think that's how he did it, um, identifying the mood shift, um, recognizing the hardship and the isolation and the shocking avoidable levels of poverty in this country um, that are affecting people in work, that are affecting our society's children, that are affecting our public sector workers, such as nurses who now talk about having to use food banks. I think that the Labour Party under Corbyn clocked that this is a country that seeks radical change. It's crying out for it. You could argue that a big chunk of the Brexit vote was a vote for change. It's just that it was delivered to the wrong address. You could say that Britain is hungry for a government that will invest in the economy, that will stem destructive and widening wealth gaps, that will champion workers, that will stop exploitation, that will go after tax avoiders, that will take back control of our essential utilities. 
and, uh, you know, rescue them from rip-off companies that are running them into the ground. But if we're looking at what's next for labor, I think we should read more into labor's policy platform. I don't think we should just see it as a bundle of retail offers, such as scrapping of student tuition fees or rolling out free school meals. I do think those policies are popular, but what was clear during the campaign, what connected with people was the rebuilding of a collective us in Britain, a shared future where we all benefit rather than a ruthless zero-sum game benefiting a tiny privileged few with more and more of us cast as the losers. You can see that in the language and the messaging that was used throughout the campaign. Again, I think that this is what caused that popularity that you're talking about. Um, this constant unifying, it was a binding together of quite disparate groups, um, pensioners and students, uh, small businesses and public sector workers, nurses, teachers, builders, and office workers. That collectivism was what brought so many different kinds of people to the Labour Party and caused its vote to rise across those different cohorts. And you can see that collectivism as well in another strand of the party uh, that has been promoted through the Corbyn leadership, and that's its democratization. We see it in the swelled membership of the party. It's now just shy of 600,000. We saw it start to operate at a conference in Brighton where um, over 1,000 delegates, a lot of them uh, first-timers, they realized that they could decide what was debated at conference. They realized that they could see the measures that they had voted for one day appear in the leadership speech the next. So this engagement, this parliamentary party talking to its grassroots has helped revive the party. And I think going forward, it can be developed, it can be deepened, it can be extended. It's the first time in my life that I've seen the parliamentary party in this wider relationship with a social movement. Um, I think it's heartening and inspiring, and it has even greater potential. Um, I think now the party will be urged to moderate. I think that, um, you know, since the election, we've seen many of our commentators with their tireless capacity to read things wrong have been urging Labour to tone it down. They've been saying that the 64 seats that Labour now needs to secure to win an overall majority can't otherwise be won. But, you know, I think in that context, we do need to see that, that the centre ground, it's not where centrist commentators think it is. Most people do define a centre when you include centre-left and centre-right, but they then go and support policies that are clearly of the left, renationalisation, investment in infrastructure, higher rates of tax on highest earners. So, as Jeremy Corbyn has said, left politics are now much more mainstream. But I think the urge to moderate will get stronger as Labour gets closer to power. It will be seen as the compromise necessary to secure power and it will become harder to resist. It must be resisted. It's important to remember what has so animated the base, what has inspired thousands of people, often through the grassroots group of Corbyn supporters' momentum, to go out and to canvas and to campaign and to turn marginal seats 
into Labour seats. Uh, it's important, too, to remember the times we're in, the boldness of the political solutions required a Labour Party that wants to keep cutting through, that wants to keep persuading people that voting is worth it, that politics matters, that their vote matters, um, needs to stay strong to the transformative power of its politics. I'd also argue that now is the time that Labour can go further. Corbyn, in his lecture last year, spoke of the need to support policies and issues that didn't have support in our mainstream media. Migration is one of those. After years of our political conversation being dominated by migrant bashing, by scapegoating, by scaremongering, it's no wonder that there is so much level, such a level of antipathy to immigration and the conversation is so toxic. Now, there is a myth that's cast when we talk about immigration, and it sees the working class, who in this scenario are always white, as these accidental bigots. You know, their, their sentiments are a position born out of poverty rather than politics. Um, and yet the determining factor in the Brexit vote was ethnicity and not economics. Racism, which is behind some of these sentiments, is an animating force with a long history in Britain, it can't be smothered out by economics. Um, you can dampen some of it with an economic offer, and you can see uh, in the last election some UKIP voters turned Labour because of the appeal of specific economic policies like renationalisation. But that's not all of it, and I think Labour now has to engage with a debate on immigration and challenge it. Um, if the party is saying it's about big change, it's about a big, transformative, radical government, then that issue has to be a part of that offer. Um, for Labour going forward, I'd say keep framing the debate, keep campaigning in those new marginals, dozens of which now have majorities of less than a 1,000, including constituencies now held by Conservative cabinet members. There's no need for Labour to keep this sort of defensive crouch that it has been almost by default in over so many years. Uh, the arguments to Labour's economic credibility are out there. They're supported by leading economists, while the arguments against conservative policy is it's in the daily reality lived around us. So I would say to Labour, keep doing what you're doing, keep doing it louder, keep joining together, keep linking up causes, Keep painting a vision of a better future for everyone. And I, I do think that the way things are going and in the current political landscape, we are really tantalizingly close to seeing a Labour Party in government. Thanks. So now, Thanks. Well, uh, when thinking about this question, where next for Labour, my immediate answer was get the popcorn out and watch everything collapse under the Tories because the short-term political advisor in me thinks that the Tories are going through a kind of protracted uh, car crash. And even though public opinion doesn't, has, doesn't seem to have responded, maybe it's just starting to tip this week, actually, um, I do think that it's quite a good time to be in the Jeremy Corbyn position of opposition at the moment, given the immensity of the problems facing the government. But that's too easy an answer. I want to talk about three things. The way in which I think things are going Labour's way, and Corbyn's way in particular, some of the sort of flashing lights that he and his team shouldn't be too uh, 
should, should be a bit more realistic about perhaps than they are. And then lastly, I want to talk about the intellectual foundations of Labour, which for me is the key hole, really, in what, what, needs, to, in what, what needs to be focused on next. So one of the extraordinary things that's happened in the last year that's gone the Labour and Corbyn's way is that a lot of the nostrums, a lot of the conventional wisdom, that when I worked for Gordon Brown and then I worked for Ed Miliband, we thought were just unquestionable obstacles in the way of a more radical Labour Party have gone, or at least have been questioned sufficiently, to encourage radicalism much more. So let me give you some examples. Um, I should start by saying I think Corbyn is the beneficiary of some spectacularly good judgments he's made and huge amounts of luck. And one of the, one of the bits of luck he's had is that his new Labour opponents have, have waged a campaign against him that has been spectacularly inept. Uh, and one of the key ways in which it's been inept is that it has consistently focused on not contending... Not, not taking on Corbyn's principled view, but giving him principle and saying the problem with Corbyn, I'm afraid, is he just can't do very well at the polls. And because he did much, much better at the polls than anyone thought, they lost their only argument against him. And that was a big mistake, I think, from the enemies within the party of the Corbyn agenda. But if you think about what's happened the last few years, last couple of years, I mean, lines of attack against Jeremy Corbyn we heard this week by the Tories comparing him to Venezuela, Bolivia, Cambodia, Pol Pot, 1970s. They don't move any voters. They only move people who've already decided that they don't like Jeremy Corbyn. The IRA thing in the, in the campaign was another example. Um, the, the problem of Jeremy Corbyn as a leader has, whatever your view of Jeremy Corbyn, been transformed by doing well. Nothing, nothing does better, more for your reputation than doing well. And doing well has made him credible, both for people who don't like him, as well as people who, who wish him very well. The movement that he's created inside the Labour Party and next to the Labour Party has become, which, which was being criticised by people inside the traditional Labour Party for so long, I think has become unambiguously an asset for him electorally. And if anyone who went to the Labour Party conference went to the World Transformed sort of Parallel Conference, it's where the intellectual energy and the cultural energy is, whatever your view of the politics of it, it's brought an entirely new approach to social media uh, and engaged people who, frankly, weren't that engaged with party politics, at least, before. Um, the idea that the press controls election, which was always a bit of a myth, but was a very gripping myth inside the Labour Party, has been bust by the last election. Um, and, as Rachel said, the, the, Corbyn and Labour are now the beneficiaries of a kind of zeitgeist change that... I think a lot of people in the country feel that individualism has just gone too far and markets are just a bit too out of control. They wouldn't use that language, everyone. But that sense is shared by people way beyond the normal parameters of Labour's vote. So there's all that. Um, plus, Jeremy Corbyn ran a campaign that had brilliance in it. There's no doubt about it. Whatever your view of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, he, he managed to pick up people who were both incredibly hostile to Brexit and working-class voters who were sceptical uh, who were pro-Brexit and may have been sceptical of the Labour Party before. Um, he did manage, I mean, if you believe, lots of Labour MPs think they won, Steve made this point about um, half, half of Labour voters thought that uh, the Tories were going to win on the eve of the election. A lot of Labour MPs thought that they got their seats back because they were Corbyn sceptics but said because the Tories were going to win anyway, you might as well vote for a good local Labour MP. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I'm sort of more sceptical than a lot of Labour MPs are about that. But um, there was... There were, a lot of, there were a lot of confluence of things that enabled Corbyn to do very well at the last election. Um, 
So, all this is good news for Labour and, and, and for Corbyn, but will the public go left? And we've, Rachel and Steve have talked about this. Let me just give you one thing that came out this, this week. Uh, Legatum, a sort of centre-right, very good centre-right think tank, did a poll asking people their views on some key issues. And this is what they found, to their horror. Support for public ownership of water, 83%. Electricity, 73%. Gas, 77%. Rail, 76%. Majority of the British public want more money spent on the NHS, more regulation on banks, uh, caps on CEO wages, workers on boards, end to zero as contracts, and prefer socialism to capitalism. Now, I don't know how the, phrase, the, the questions were worded, but they were worded with Legatum backing it, so you'd suspect that they weren't designed to produce that answer. Now, I, I agree with Steve that d believing all those things doesn't make you a card-carrying Corbynite, but there is a, there is a travelling wind with the Corbyn agenda, which I think he's gonna, which is, which is a supportive one. Um, and, and I think, what was in passing, this shouldn't surprise us because one of the great myths that I think the last few years has exploded is the idea that it's left-wing to believe in all these things, that it's left-wing to believe that there should be limits on the way markets work, that it's left-wing to believe that in the absence of decent railways and decent energy services, we should think about state <coughs> ownership a bit more. It's not left-wing. It's mainstream social democracy in most European countries and has been for the last 40 years. We got to a point where... The agenda economic liberalism was so rampant that the centre was seen to be accepting economic liberalism in all its, in all its virtues and vices. And that was never the real centre. So there's a welcome correction that's gone on here. And I don't think we should think of this as a highly left-wing agenda. I don't think the public thinks of those individual issues as a highly left-wing agenda. Right, but here are the problems that I think need to be faced up to. Funny enough, I think all four of these problems are the same as the Tories' problems. The economy, Brexit, the state of the party, and intellectual foundations. I'll just breeze over some of these. Economy, I mean, the economy is not in, a good, sh in good shape. Uh, just today is a story about the, what one Treasury official briefed the FT as a bloodbath in public finances that awaits the Chancellor at the budget. Uh, public finances are in a bad state. We are now the slowest growing country in the G7, having been the fastest growing one just a year ago. Um, our public sphere is in pretty dire state. I think most people understand that. It's a pretty awful climate, and our productivity is absolutely shocking. And actually, for me, it's the key problem of our, of our economy, is our productivity disaster. Brexit, I'll come back to Brexit at the end, but Brexit dominates the legislative time of whatever government is in power in the next two or three years. Uh, and I think Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, often leaders, I mean, like Theresa May is one of these people, inherit a dominant issue they have to deal with, which isn't the issue they'd have chosen when they want to become leader of a party. Uh, Brexit is one of those issues, and it is for Corbyn, I think, as reluctant a dominant issue as it is for Theresa May, and it divides parties. The party issue, though, I think is a bigger one. I mean, I think Jeremy Corbyn has outfoxed his parliamentary sceptics inside the Labour Party consistently and built this movement, which I think is as a source of strength uh, for him and for Labour. Uh, but I think, ultimately, you're going to have to have a reconciliation between the, some sort of brittle peace hopefully leading to a more steady, stable and prosperous peace between the Parliamentary Party and the rest of the Labour Party. I don't think a party in government can survive with that kind of level of pitch warfare between the Parliamentary Party and the leadership in the way we've seen in the last two years. I think the, ele the election made that a bit better, but I think it has much more, much bigger way to go. But the thing I want to focus on in the last five minutes is the intellectual foundations. I think that the paradox of the Corbyn movement, I'd be interested if Rachel agrees with this, which is that I think it is... In, as a movement, organisationally incredibly vibrant and sort of path-breaking in many ways. But intellectually, it, it still feels quite flat to me. 
It still feels like it's not buzzing with new ideas um, and with a sort of encouraging a climate of new thinking about policy, but not just policy, but about um, uh, sort of different philosophical approaches as well. And I, I think I, I don't think, and some people caricatured Ed Miliband, the team that I was sort of one of the runners of, as a sort of excessively wonky, nerdy team. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Obviously, me excluded. I wasn't excessively wonky, but um, but uh, I'm not saying that there should be a doorstep offer in which we sort of offer, uh, you know, a, a sort of panoply of intellectual concepts. I'm not saying that at all. But I think you can't have. Uh, a successful governing project without the intellectual foundations. And I think there is work to be done on that. Um, now, there are lots of big questions which I could talk about, like whether we, there's a big choice to be made about whether we have a, a, a kind of transfer of power to local, uh, to towns and cities rather than everything at the centre. There's big silences so far from the Corbyn team, which I think need to be filled in on issues like crime and immigration, welfare, maybe even Europe. But I want to talk about, because I'm a political economy academic by background, I want to talk about political economy. For me, the absence of a political economy is the real problem, not just of the Corbyn Labour Party, but of the left. The left has lost its political economy. And it lost it with the crash. I mean, there was a very successful new Labour political economy, which was totally destroyed by the crash. And we have to have 10 years of no left party, no mainstream left party, finding an alternative way of both of sustaining the kind of economic policy you need to have a political strategy that works and a political strategy that supports a successful economy, a political economy. And I think that is where the effort needs to go. And let me just, let me just sort of conclude with some thoughts about what that might be. I mean, I could char characterise where I think a, a, a Corbyn Labour Party might go in the sort of the banner, an active state which um, produces inclusive growth with more regional equality and more income equality. And I think that's two parts of it, a kind of supply side side, which is a different way of growing, if you like, and a distributional side. And Labour likes the distributional side. That's our comfort zone. But we need to have a much more sophisticated story about how we grow. So this, for me, would involve uh, a story about reinvigorating national public infrastructure, a kind of new deal for the country, which reattaches the rest of the country to the growth that, for the last 40 years, the South East has had. I mean, that, that, that should be... I'm taking advantage of, as long as we have them, of basically zero interest rates as well. I mean, it's a scandal that the last 10 years, when interest rates have been low, that the government hasn't borrowed on the back of them to, re to reinvigorate our public infrastructure. And I think that is something that, that, that a, a Corbyn-led Labour Party could do. I think there is an argument, there's a strong economic argument and a political argument for a, a big shift in industrial policy power to city regions following the success of what happens in Manchester. And I think business could find that quite an attractive offer, and I think it's also an egalitarian move. Um, I think there is a lot of progress that can be made on a tax system that is more genuinely progressive, which taxes assets that people can't shift out of the country or hide, stickier assets, wealth assets, property, land. Uh, the Treasury will be a big ally in this, by the way. The Treasury thinks it's a scandal that property and land aren't taxed properly in our country. Um, it would also mean that tax evasion and avoidance would be lower. There's much more scope to make our tax system more genuinely progressive, which is an intuition shared by the vast majority of people in our country. Um, there is a lot more uh, scope to do what Ed Miliband pushed before, I think, and what actually Theresa May talks about but never delivers on, which is using the state to confront markets that do not work in the public interest, whether they're energy markets or banking banks, whether it's payday lending, whether it's labor markets. Uh, these are markets where the public expects rules to be observed and rules to be improved when they don't work. And it is not, um, 
it, it can embrace a majority of public support, in my view, to take a strong stand on those things. And lastly, we should bring in, I think Corbyn has successfully brought back to the centre of focus something that the left for 200 years kind of got out of bed for and started campaigning and marching and getting passionate about, which is work, the nature of work, the quality of work and the dignity of work. And it, that was an issue that New Labour was pretty silent on for too long. And it is now centre stage again, not just on zero-hours contracts, not just on workers on boards, but we should be thinking about new ways to give workers power. For example, we could, we could give workers power in, in, the, in, the, in the shareholder context as well by reviving like, the old Swedish idea of giving workers uh, a chunk of um, a share of profits of large companies and putting that in collectively owned workers' pots so that workers have shareholder power. There's all sorts of ways in which there, is, there are possibilities for new policy ideas which reflect these values that Corbyn has championed. So... All of that. Last point, Brexit. I'll stop here. I, I may have a different view to other people, other people here about this, but I, I genuinely think... Uh, I, I was, I'm a Remainer by background, uh, but I genuinely think there is going to come a point in the next six months when Brexit uh, can be stopped. And I'm not apologetic about it. I think Brexit should be stopped. I don't think it should be a kind of conspiracy against the public. I think the public... I think we have to follow the public, and I suspect the public will, mood will change on Brexit. I could be wrong about that. Whether, or, whether I'm right or wrong is a separate question. For me, I think that staying in the European Union is a crucial part of the political economy for Labour, and it's very, very difficult to have one without. We, we may have to be in that position. We may well have to be in that position. I wouldn't rate the chances of Brexit not happening at anything more than like 40%, 50% at the moment, but I think it's not insignificant. But the reason for me it's so important is because it's very difficult for me to envisage a more generally progressive, more equal, more productive, and more regionally equal country uh, if we're offshore Britain outside the European Union. And just as a reflection on that, I think one of the big mistakes that we've made is on the left in the last 20, 30 years is making an argument for Europe, which is essentially a right-wing argument about Europe, a single market argument. There is a much better argument about the European Union, and it could be too late to make this argument, but I hope it isn't, which is what you might call a kind of Varoufakis argument which is that actually the European Union is about the collective power of democracies to stand up against markets that are out of control. And that, that argument for the European Union is a left argument. I don't think it's too late. The, Amazon, you know, the tax judgment yesterday about Amazon back, back, back taxes shows what, what the European Union in that context can do. And I am hopeful, and maybe you think I'm naive here or sort of not living in the real world, but I'm hopeful that if there did come a moment when the public moved on the wisdom of Brexit, because the negotiations obviously aren't getting anywhere, because the governing party is so split, because the economy is not doing very well, I'd like to think that Labour under Corbyn would have uh, the courage to both ask for a pause in the Brexit trajectory and start making a better left-wing case for the European Union on the back of it. Well, thank you to all three of our participants. Um, I'm, I'm just going to start now, as I said, by asking... I think I'll just ask one question to each as we want to make sure there's time for everybody. Uh, I'm just going to pick up on one thing that you said, um, so I'll just start at the end and come through. So, um, Steve, one of the things you were talking about was the importance of age as, uh, to, to the election result in 2017. And I just wanted you to reflect on that a bit further... I mean, it's a conventional sort of political sociology wisdom would have it that people are socialised at a young age and that that carries through pretty much for most of their life unless there's a big exogenous shock. On that reading, this is a huge problem for the Conservative Party if, if these people get glued on to Labor. 
I wonder whether you think that that's the best and most likely reading of it, or is it rather that this is just another instance of something that's going on across the board, huge swings of volatility, uh, in which you find people incredibly popular one year and a few years later not. Do you want to just reflect on that? Is it, is it the conventional wisdom flowing <coughs> through? I mean, if you had to guess, or, or is it a, a new story about detached voters, no ballast for parties, huge volatility? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's much more the latter um, than the former, and I think um, uh, with um, increasing kind of de-alignment of um, successive generations of uh, voters, um, people will expect the younger cohorts to swing much more according to uh, who's up and who's down generally and, um, uh, and, and change their minds. And, and that was essentially true of the, uh, the changes in party support. They were bigger for the uh, younger cohorts. Um, in some ways, um, we can understand the resistance of the older voters to the rise of Corbyn's popularity as a sign of them being socialised and more set in their ways. Um, the change was there, um, and beca partly because the level of Conservative support um, before the election was called amongst the over 65s got to ridiculous heights of 80, 90% in the, in the polls. So it did come down a bit uh, for the over 65s, and Labour did improve a bit in that cohort during the campaign. Uh, but the dramatic transformations, um, both on uh, support and on um, uh, actual willingness to turn out and vote, um, uh, were in the younger cohorts who are much more de aligned. Okay, thanks. Um, Rachel, can I address myself to you? Um, I mean, I thought it was particularly interesting the way you were talking about a kind of moment of realignment in a sense. That, I mean, though you didn't want to overstate the comparison, you said there was something in the comparison with the Great Depression, and I mean, I think there's a lot to that. Um, and, and you went on to say that one of the distinctive things about uh, the Corbyn leadership was that they were producing a social movement in relationship with the conventional Labor Party. Um, and it's, it's, it's that that I just wanted to ask you about. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think in the, in the 1930s that was absolutely critical to it being a realignment. And, and my question is really, is it really a movement in that 1930s sense, or is it rather something that's more like what in France you would call a rally? Um, now, of course, in France, these rallies have been mobilised by presidential candidates, de Gaulle on the right and others on the left, for a long time. But you can see that rally politics in the United States as well, where, you know, feel the burn. Um, the, the, but, but what's left of feel the burn after the election process? Not very much. There are no institutions. There's no separate ballast. To what extent is the movement around Jeremy Corbyn, does it have something of feel the burn about it, or is it a, a movement in the sense that it has its own institutional basis, its own ballast, it's not just connected to rallying to that particular individual? Mm. Well, I think <laughs> that's a very big question. There's a few things going on there, and I think, you know, in this, in this sort of labour surge, this is why it's important not to be complacent, and this is why it's important to keep, um, to keep trying to change the political landscape because it is so volatile. Um, the, the sort of regressive forces that were so horribly animated in the 30s 
um, have a parallel, though not obviously to the same horrendous consequences, with the regressive forces that were animated during Brexit. Now, those things are still in society. They haven't suddenly disappeared, and they could be reanimated uh, by the right. There is potential for that. Um, but the reason that I think that this movement is not a kind of feel the burn is that you can see that it has a trajectory that's a couple of decades old. So, you know, it, it, you could chart it back to the sort of anti-capitalist protests of the late 90s, which essentially were anti-neoliberalism protests, but on a global sense. Um, that morphed into and linked up with um, Stop the War, demonstrations against the war in Iraq, uh, which obviously caused a lot of people to fall away from the Labour Party. Uh, that linked into and was informed by climate change, climate change campaigners, climate camp, climate summits, um, which then we saw progress through uh, Occupy, through um, the student protest movement, through the UK Uncut movement. And all of, you can see that all of these strands came together um, once they realized that they didn't have to just exist as social movements, that they could actually be in, in conversation with a parliamentary Labour Party that wanted to be in conversation with them, that wanted to engage with those politics, and that wanted to join those politics together in a sort of unifying vision um, that it could then sort of put out as, as a message into the wider society. So, so that's why I think that it has longevity. And just linking it to what you were talking about, the political economy, I think that um, for the last couple of years, that movement has been focused on defending the leadership yeah. of Corbyn. Yeah, and I think we're, trying, we're starting to see green shoots now. The World Transformed events at Brighton Conference had a lot of yeah. uh, energy and intellectual energy to them. But, but also we're dealing with 30 years of a of a particular consensus, a neoliberal consensus, that seeped into our institutions, our think tanks, our universities, our intellectual life. Um, so there is, of course, there is work to be done in, in sort of recalibrating that in a different direction. Thanks. Um, so, Stuart, um, there's so many things you were saying, and I, I'm hard-pressed to decide which thing to ask you about, but I think, I think what I'll ask you about is this, something that you said quite early on, and you, you were characterising the, the new Labour opponents of Corbyn as, as suffering from a sort of fundamental misconception in a way. Um, and I don't know if this is exactly how you put it, but the, 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 they would juxtapose sort of realism and idealism, or perhaps you said power and principle, something like that. And, and my question has to do with with the whole notion of realism, really. Um, I mean, after all, the new Labour opponents of Corbyn did have the opinion polls on their side at first. But the, the new Democratic supporters of Hillary, when facing down Bernie Sanders, did not have the polls on their side, and yet they continued to argue that Hillary was the only real option, realistic option, that Bernie was somehow not, mm. even though the polls showed that Bernie might have won against um, mm. Trump. Mm. And, and, and this makes me wonder more generally, um, I mean, what is the role of realism and how does it come to become fixed and separated from the evidence at some level? Yeah. Um, in I mean, the way that this is, mm. and as, as someone who is sort of 
in the bunker of parts of New Labour with Gordon Brown. I think this is... I've, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot, and I've not got an answer necessarily, but I think that... I think Rachel's put her finger on this about the, the way in which... When, when a lot of my friends, the, the, the other people I'm talking about here, when, when people very close to the New Labour project stood up against Jeremy Corbyn and said, look, not just the polls are, polls are saying you haven't got a chance of winning, but look, just everyone just knows you're not going to win. You look at him, he's not going to win, right? He just can't be a credible candidate. What that played into, I think, was not really an empirical sense of what's realistic and what isn't, but it's something quite ideological, which, as you said, had seeped in. Uh, and and it, it, it's, it's the idea that if you didn't embrace, basically, globalisation and free markets in some fundamental way, that you just weren't going to do well, that, that the country just thought you weren't serious unless you bought that wholesale. So for me, the apotheosis of this view, this sort of realism becoming dogma view, is, I, I know, I, I've written about this, is, is Tony Blair's 2005 conference speech. So he just won his third election, an extraordinary achievement, um, conference speech in September 2005, and he has this phrase when he says, there are people who are questioning globalisation. You might as well question whether autumn should follow summer. They're not questioning it in India. They're not questioning it in China. Now, what that said was basically, if you've got any problems with globalisation, foreign ownership, migration, constant pace of change in the economy, whatever it is, I'm sorry, you've just got to wake up. That's just the way it is. You can't do anything about it. That was the signal it sent out. Actually, New Labour did some things about globalisation, by the way. We just didn't really talk. They didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it. But that, for me, was the peak of the idea that somehow you just had to wake up and smell the coffee and understand that you had to accept some basic tenets of liberal economics if you wanted to be a serious politician. That has gone now, I think. For better and for worse, that has gone. And I think Corbyn is the beneficiary as well as the sort of protagonist of this. And so I think it, it was realism that became dogma. And I think the Hillary Clinton team actually were the last outpost for that dogma. And, and, it's, and it got exposed, I'm afraid. It got exposed quite badly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, now it's time to ask uh, you for questions. Um, I'll, I'll just start by taking individuals. When, when I call you, can you wait for the microphone to come and can you just quickly say who you are and where you're from? Because I know people come from many different places. Can we just have this woman here in blue? J just wait for the microphone. And... Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a secondary school student in Croydon and a Labour member. And I've seen a lot of uh, particularly fervent leftist support from young people. And I was wondering, to what extent do you think aggressive Corbynism from young people is alienating would-be Labour voters? Um, I wonder actually how we should do this, because I'll have to direct them, otherwise we'll be here all, all day. Um, it, might, might we just take two or three questions? Would it be all right if we did that? And, you just, and, and then I'll, I'll direct them, because otherwise... Um, so this <coughs> gentleman with the uh, grey coat... Uh, hi, my name's Harry. I'm from IPPR, the progressive think tank. Um, uh, Stephen talked about um, the kind of failure of Labour to win um, kind of working class, traditional working class vote, votes, traditional Labour base. And I was wondering uh, if he could reflect a bit on how much that's a problem for them in terms of winning an election. There's obviously a kind of, a slight kind of Corbynite narrative that we will just win uh, younger, young, more younger votes, more non-voters... Um, you know, we did an event at a party conference with John Landsman who basically said, oh, it's fine, older people literally almost said older people will die off, so we just need to win the younger vote. Is there, an electoral, is there a way to victory where you just win the young, educated vote, or are they going to have to reach out to those people that they've lost previously and who have very differing opinions to the, to the vote that they're kind of winning overwhelmingly from educated younger voters? 
Okay, and, and, and one other. Um, this, this woman here with the dark top on. Hi, I'm Alice. I used to work for the Labour Party and now work in international development. My question is really, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what it will actually take to win the next election, where if you were, like, you know, running the general election strategy for Labour, which seats would you actually focus on? And we haven't spoken about Scotland at all, and there's been quite a lot of coverage that says, you know, the Tories might not be doing so well here, but they're doing a lot better in Scotland, and if Labour can't win in Scotland, then it's never going to win a general election. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, A, where would you focus if you were a general election, director of general election campaigns, and what about Scotland? Okay, thanks. I, I'm, I'm going to direct you to the first one about aggressive Corbynism, if you don't mind, Me. Rachel. Yeah. yeah, I thought you might. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're an aggressive, you're not aggressive at all. Um, so I think that... This is quite, um, this has got a couple of layers. I mean, the, the, the surface layer, we see that, you know, that there has been a lot of media attention on these particularly nasty, aggressive left wing that, it, that is uniquely horrible and aggressive and says mean things. We've seen lots of articles about the, you know, the, the, the aggressive terminology of the new left wing. You know, why do they keep calling people slugs and melts and centrist dads? Why can't they just be nicer? Um, and I think that to some extent that papers over the fact that, you know, all politics is pretty nasty. The right of the party can be quite nasty. Certainly the right wing can be nasty. So the fact that they are sort of, you know, that there's so much attention on this particular section, um, I think puts people, makes people defensive because it's not... It's, it's disproportionate, it makes people defensive. And that's unfortunate because, you know, I think that there is now space, especially with so many of these Corbyn supporters essentially being proved right about keeping him as leader. There is space now to have these necessary discu discussions about things that are alienating others. Um, I would put the sort of macho bordering on misogyny elements in that basket. I would put issues around anti-Semitism in that basket. Um, and I, I do think that there is space now um, for the left of the party to engage more honestly with those subjects than perhaps has been the case in the past. Okay, thanks. Steve, um, the gentleman from the IPPR, his question was largely yeah. directed. Um, so I think um, young people and continuing with that kind of approach to thinking, oh, we just need a coalition of young people and graduates um, and, uh, and one more heave is, is not the right attitude. As I was kind of hinting at towards the end of my presentation with the banal just be popular thing, um, you can't rely on any particular coalition and uh, the parties that win majorities are parties that get them by um, winning popularity across the board and you get your uh, winning majority however it comes depending on the issues of the day and, um, and, and the peculiar politics of the day. I mean one particular issue with the young people and graduates is if the next election is again a lot about Brexit then we can probably expect a similar kind of um, pattern of uh, socio-demographic voting. Uh, but if it's about something else, uh, then we'll expect a quite a different pattern again. Um, and it's far 
better as a strategy to just focus on the uh, broad appeal for the many, not the few, was a good slogan for Blair and it was a good slogan for Corbyn um, and, uh, and various arguments I made about what was actually in the manifesto um, were quite, in effect quite centrist and, and appealed to lots of people um, and actually uh, the kind of Corbyn image of sort of Father Christmas, nice old man handing out lots of stuff that only the people earning over £100,000 and big corporations had to pay for uh, and going to build loads of railways and, um, and super fast broadband. Everybody loved it. Um, you know, what was not to like, unless you were a big corporation or, or one of the um, people earning over £100,000. Um, so it's, it's being able to sell all of that uh, and sell it credi credibly um, and maintaining a broad appeal. Um, and it is likely to When Going back to my answer to Robin... The, the swing amongst young people might be as much consequence um, of getting a bit, uh, sorry, a bigger swing amongst young people might be as much consequence of broad appeal uh, as it is of particular appeal to young people. Um, I think there's a danger of exaggerating the extent to which uh, retail politics for young people, particularly tuition fees, was um, crucial to the young vote. Um, can I say a quick thing about Scotland? Um, so. I, I was going to say something about Scotland before I ran out of time talking. Um, it is important. Uh, Blair won his majority without um, Scotland, uh, but it's pretty hard for Labour to win a majority without um, seats in Scotland, a uh, significant number of seats in Scotland. There are a bunch of marginals uh, where Labour are not very far behind that are there to be won. Uh, the thing is... Uh, uh, the question of was right to suggest a strategy for Scotland is what is needed because uh, Scottish politics, as John, keeps, uh, John Curtis keeps saying, is, is uh, a very different beast and British politics is dead. It's the debate in Scotland and the deliberation in Scotland is kind of semi-detached from what's happening in England and Wales. Um, England and Wales are much bigger and will dominate. Um, and Scottish politics will kind of be related to that, but the key thing Labour has to do is develop a clear uh, basis on what it stands for on the constitutional question. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem for Labour in Scotland recently in the referendum and, and, and well, basically over the last decade almost, um, is that people just say, I don't know what Labour stands for anymore in Scotland. And... The, but the other thing that might be good now for Labour in Scotland is, whereas it was a real problem for Ed Miliband talking publicly about what would happen in the event of a hung parliament um, uh, and dependence on the SNP, I think the politics in Scotland has changed that it wouldn't be patronising just to call the SNP's bluff and, and, and for Labour in Scotland just to say, or Labour nationally just to say, well, we will um, ask the SNP uh, whether they'll support us or not or whether they'll keep the Tories in power uh, and uh, you'll see from their answer that they won't keep the Tories in power and therefore uh, they'll support us come up May so we will pull the shots. Um. Okay. Um, so, Stuart, I don't know if you... Yeah, I mean, just question, yeah. ...constituencies and so on. Yeah, I mean, I agree very much with what Steve said about mm -hmm. Scotland. I mean... <sighs> Scotland's been depressing for Labour for a while, but I'm not trying to uh, count, what, count chickens, is that what you say? Um, 
uh, I'm not, I, I don't think we should be sort of excessively optimistic too soon, but I do think that things are slightly on the up for Labour in Scotland now. Uh, there's a lot of hard work to be done, but I, I think Steve's right. I think a, a more credible social democratic unionist with a lot, of, with a lot more credible devolution is where we should be. And I think actually what Labour could do, as I get back to my talk, to give cover for that uh, is be the party that is committed to transferring wealth and injecting uh, more wealth capacity into regions outside of the UK, outside of London, inside the UK, outside the UK, outside of London, inside the UK. Uh, if that's the national stance, I think that will have sort of positive ripples in the, in, in the Scottish Labour part of the world as well. And to go back to your broader question, Alice, I think... Look, Labour's, both the referendum and the last election, we had serious problems in parts of, uh, parts of what used to be a heartland, West, you know, West Midlands, North East and elsewhere. And I think that... Uh, and turning the resentment against London from something that is currently funnelled through issues like immigration and maybe Europe into a kind of the South East getting a privileged deal compared to the rest of the country. That, for me, is the framing trick that Corbyn's Labour needs to do. And I think the kind of agenda I'm talking about is the way you could do that. I think also, I'm not sure whether Corbyn's team is doing this, or Steve may, may know about this, but the, the, the oddity seats in the last election that puzzled everyone, like Canterbury and Plymouth, I think, you know, again, one of the, one of the, one of the, right, one of the arguments in Labour against Corbyn from the sort of right of Labour or centre of Labour, whatever you want to call it, was that, that he couldn't win in the South. Corbyn did enough, surprise, surprisingly well perhaps, in bits of the South for people to think actually that isn't necessarily a long-term characteristic. But why do we do so well there? Is it just students or other, other things going on? I think that's something that is a really important agenda item for Labour for the, for the next election. Okay, let's take another round of questions, please. Um, right, we've got lots of hands. Um, this, this person here with the white shirt. Just wait for the thing, say who you are and so on. Uh, I'm Joe. I'm from uh, Sixth Form in Hertfordshire. Uh -huh. I'm just wondering, what do you think Labour will need to do to be able to keep the recent surge in support and momentum from the young and educated vote? Okay, thank you very much. Um, we just have the gentleman at the back with his hand up. Hello, my name is Sinan. I'm an economics student here at the LSE. I just wanted to ask, uh, why do you think the Labour Party has been so ineffective at winning the economic argument? even though their policies are quite popular, like you mentioned, with the public, and especially given that living standards and wages have stagnated mm. since the crash. So just ineffective in which argument? Just say that. Economic argument. <coughs> Economic <laughs> argument, I see. Okay. Um, and um, one other person, uh, the person with the purple tie, please. Thank you. Hi. I I'm Andrew. I I'm from your past in that 20 years ago, three of you were teaching me politics. Oh. Uh, and my question's about timing, actually. When should Labour hope the next election is in order to maximise their chances? Would you agree that playing this long, having Brexit in the past, will enable some of the working class levers to return to the fold? It'll allow time for the cultural programme that you were talking about to fully grow and it'll ensure the media don't frame it as a Brexit election and allow the intellectual framework that you're talking about to really be articulated. Okay, thanks. That's a, a large set of questions. Um, to keep the young and educated. I don't know, Steve, you've become the, the young and educated for the purpose of the panel. Um, so, um, sorry, I didn't hear the question the properly. Um, what do, we need, what does Labour need to do to keep the young and educated vote strong? Um, so, I think following the logic of what I've been saying, 
they need to maintain their overall popularity um, and amongst everybody and, and then that would include the young and educated. Um, I think they are not terribly in danger of losing them um, disproportionately. Um, it does, as I said, depend heavily on whether or not Brexit remains an issue um, at the next election um, because one of the things that sustains that level of support amongst uh, the educated and the young is uh, the fact that they want a softer Brexit and they were Remainers. Um, and if there become other reasons to vote uh, for the Tories um, and they become less impressed uh, with Labour and whether they'll deliver, um, they, like everybody else, would drift away. So I don't know that there's a particular strategy. And, and obviously, I take it as uh, the case that Labour can't really want to perpetuate a conflict over Brexit. I, I think everybody should want Brexit to be sorted out and, uh, and want us to move on. I mean, it does depend very heavily on what the timing of the next election is and what, uh, and what the next election has to be about, given how it comes about. Um, but that's going to be an answer for somebody else. Okay. Yeah. So as our resident political economist, um, the second... Uh, no, for this purpose, it's a member of the panel. Um, All right. So uh, the, the second question was asking that it's, it's suggesting it was ineffective. Um, yeah, uh, the the economic policy. I, I don't know. Did you ever thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I f I f I'll be honest. I felt when working with Ed Miliband in particular that we were really, really good at putting our finger on problems that resonated widely, like the living standards problem, cost of living problem, um, the fact that for the first time in decades, people saw their children likely to earn less and have less wealth than themselves. I mean, we, we definitely felt that that resonated. I think what we were not good at was having radicalism in our answers to that that matched the kind of incisiveness of the analysis, if you see what I mean. I think, and, that's what we, and that's, I think, where Corbyn has shown that um, actually you can be more radical and, and actually not, not have the hemorrhaging of support that everyone predicted for so long. But I think the bigger answer to your question is, goes back to what we were saying earlier on, that I think Labour's been in this sort of internal tension, accepting what is fundamentally a very right-wing, economic, liberal argument about the world, thinking that Labour's path back from the wilderness into power was premised on Tony, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Peter Mandelson and others, uh, think, thinking, rightly for the time, I think, that you couldn't be taken seriously unless you accepted some fundamental things about what the right was saying about economics. And Although they did, you know, I'm very proud of the things that Labour did in power in those 10 years. Um, but uh, I think that the idea that somehow you had to continue to accept all those things in perpetuity to be serious is not, is not correct. And I think that Labour has suffered for individual issues being, being, being um, on the side of the majority. But then when the kind of voters look metaphorically in the eye of the, of the Labour Party, they, they, they sort of see this internal tension. And I think that's, that's how we felt at the last election. Like, in issues like the, the best day we had in our campaign in 2015 was when, when Ed Miliband said that we should get rid of non-DOMs, people who, you know, wealthy people who don't pay tax in this, in this country. Incredibly popular. And I know from talking to Tories, they were quite ruffled by it. It was very popular. It really hurt their brand. Um, but then when you go to the bigger picture, we looked like we were, well, we want more spending, but we're not prepared to tell you how much more spending. And we were sort of, 
we looked like we were kind of struggling on the horns of whether we were really prepared to jettison 15 years of accepting that economic liberal framework. And I think that was our problem. And I think Corbyn has at least had a refreshing break with that. So much so now that, you know, even mainstream Tories are now saying, of course we should borrow more to spend on public investment, public infrastructure. We, I can promise you, we stayed up all night worrying about whether Ed Miliband could say that just two years ago, thinking it was too radical. And I think that shift has happened now. So that's a, that's a good thing for the left, I think. Definitely a good thing for the left. Okay, and Rachel, uh, the third question was about when should Labor hope that the election would come, and in particular whether it should come after Brexit was sort of done yeah. and dusted. I mean, I would, I would just quickly add to hmm. what, what you said, which all sounds completely, completely agree with what you said about the economy, but I think a big issue there as well was just framing, framing, framing. I mean, the Conservatives just came up with this ridiculous analogy about the economy, you know, why we needed austerity, because the economy is like a household budget, you know, if there's no money going in, then you can't put any money out. And everyone just, you know, all economists just looked at that and went, that's nonsense. That's not how an economy works. That's just ludicrous. But it was, it was very simple. It was very convincing. And, and Labour didn't have something that was as good as that. Um, and I think what we're starting to see with, with um, Corbyn is that you know, they're, they're developing a narrative that that's basically says it's neoliberalism stupid, right? I mean, they're not saying those words, but they are saying, you know, we didn't cause the economic crash, clearly. The bankers of the unfettered free market did. Um, we are not talking about a magic money tree. We are talking about the few who are high earners paying a little bit more to help everyone else. You can see that it's, it's starting to emerge, a, a, a simple narrative that will, that will match the simplicity of that bogus mm. economic argument. Um, but on the election, uh, I think it's a really good question. Um, it's really difficult to say. Uh, you, you, there's, 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 a, there's a balance here. There's having an election very, very soon would... Um, obviously galvanize it. There's the momentum. The momentum is with Labour or the polls. There was a YouGov one just at the end of Labour conference last week that said they would win. 43% um, of the population would vote for Labour. Um, so clearly the moment is now in terms of popularity, but then you spin that against the long game of actually taking time to engage with communities and going into all those, you know, there are dozens of seats that are now marginal um, Labour, uh, Conservatives didn't just mess up this election, they messed up the next election just because so many of those seats are so vulnerable. Um, I think there's you know, 40, 50 of them with majorities of less than 5,000 and 20 plus with majorities of less than 1,000. So you know, there's something to be said about doing the long game of preparing the ground and also, by the way, challenging some of the sort of regressive anti-immigration arguments, laying the ground to push back for when that arises. Um, but I think when you look at the Labour leadership now, what, I think what they're doing is, you can't necessarily predict that, but you can make sure you're ready for whenever it happens. So a lot of what they're trying to do at the moment, from what I see in, in talking with them, is um, trying to come over as, as, a, as, a, as ready to rule, ready to govern. So whether that involves talking with businesses and saying to them, look, we know you don't like the corporation tax, it's fine, but we are going to invest in infrastructure, we are going to invest in, you know, vocational education, free vocational education, and, uh, you know, technology and broadband, the kind of things that 
are going to make you more productive. So, you know, maybe corporation tax with all that in return isn't so bad. Um, preparing the leadership team, the shadow cabinet, who are relatively inexperienced to be able to play government, right? To be able to do government, to understand the levers and mechanisms of government um, so that they can get their policies through. They are thinking about um, which policies to put into place first uh, and why. So I think while they may not be able to predict when the election is, they can try and make sure that they are ready to govern for whenever that may be. Um, thanks very much. Look, I, I, I see the time is, is rapidly moving, and I think if I take another three questions, we'll, we'll run over. So what, what I just wanted to do, if it's all right, was just take this Brexit question and just ask each of you something very quickly about it, because I think people are very exercised about Brexit, and we, we haven't spoken that much about it. So, so, so Steve, if I, if I could just ask you really to follow up. I mean, the, the British Electoral Study seems to suggest that Brexit-related issues moved a lot of voters... Um, at least that's what Jane Green, the head of it, mm -hmm. says. Um, it, it, it does suggest then that if, if Labor had to commit to a Brexit position rather than sort of straddle it, it could be uh, a significant problem for it. I mean, have you got an observation about this question of Brexit and whether Labor can continue on once it has to commit one way or another to a Brexit position? So I think going forward, it very much depends on when you think the next election is going to be, and I think the next election is more likely than not to be 2022, because I think it's more likely than not that the Tories will stumble on in power uh, until the bitter end. Or if it is earlier, it will be because the Tories think they can, they're suddenly revived in popularity and they think they might win. Um, I think Brexit could play in, out in all sorts of different ways. Um, and one way we shouldn't rule out is uh, that um, it becomes portrayed and framed in the media as a war with the rest of Europe. Um, you might, people might remember um, the whole stuff over Gibraltar and uh, Michael Howard comparing that to the Falklands. I mean, the Falklands totally transformed Margaret Thatcher's premiership um, in the early 80s. And it, if somehow Brexit turns into a story of... It's them against us, and we managed to just pull it out the good deal out of the bag at the end and hooray from the tabloid media. Um, that could lead to a massive surge for the Tories, and we shouldn't rule that possibility out. Um, I'm in danger of sounding like that budget column and going on a flight <laughs> of fancy again. Um, but the, uh, you know, the default thing from electoral cycles is to expect governments to decline in popularity as they go on. They've already been in power since 2010 and, and 12 years by 2022. Uh, it ought to be labours for the taking um, and, uh, and so if it is, uh, and by 2022 Brexit uh, ought to be relatively settled. I mean I'm not saying I think it definitely will be. Um, uh, and, and then it becomes much more about, well, do we want, still want to be governed by Tories and running the economy, or do we, is it time for a change? And uh, the time for a change argument should okay. be more powerful. Stuart, can I, can I just talk to you? And, I mean, you, for, for some time you were advising Gordon Brown on European foreign affairs, um, so you've, you've thought somewhat about this. I mean, What's, uh, what's the prospect of, of Labor having a, a positive relationship with other European countries in, in the wake of Brexit? Um, 
given everything that you know about that relationship and you how mean, it's developed. after Brexit after, happens? After, well, should it happen? I mean, you've, you've set out why you think it would be possible to, yeah. to curtail it, but presuming um, that it does happen <coughs> and Labor comes to power. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think Corbyn himself, I think, feels a very strong affinity with some parts of the left in Europe, but it's not the traditional parts that Labor leaders have felt affinity with in the past. I mean, he feels, I think, quite a strong affinity with Syriza and Podemos and the sort of more radical populist left. Um, and... I think, in general, Labour has not been very good at being solidaristic with social democratic parties in Europe. I mean, we talk a decent talk, but actually, as the person who used to go out and try and forge the bonds, I think that we paid lip service to it and didn't really make use of it that much, and that sometimes was a problem uh, for us. But um, look, I, I, I do think, I, I guess, I, the, the more Corbynite one is, I think the more one should be resisting Brexit, <laughs> uh, because all the things that... The left, you know, someone like me and people further to the left of me care about, like standing up to the United States on when they do things wrong, standing up to Russia, standing up to China, standing up to Google, standing up to Amazon, security in parlous parts of the world. All these things are advanced by being a member of the European Union, in my view, not by leaving the European Union. So I actually I agree with Steve that I think look, the lesson of the 70s is that governments with no majorities limp on till the end. One of the things that unites the Tory party is their hatred of. Labour. Well, they, they, they hate Labour way more than they hate each other. Um, and uh, I, think, I think limping on is quite possible, but I don't think that by 2022 we'll be in that much of a different situation to now. I mean, we'll have formally left the EU because by treaty we'll have to, but actually we'll be effectively still members of the EU in some prolonged status quo transition. And so everything will still be up for grabs, to use Brian Moore's phrase. Um, so I think that... Um, I think actually the, the next election will probably be dominated by Brexit in a different guise whenever it happens in the next three or four years. Okay, and, and just quickly, Rachel, I mean, you, you've spoken um, eloquently about the agenda-setting effect of, of Corbyn's leadership, and I, th I think that's very clear in a whole range of policy areas. One area that it's not so clear in is this one about Brexit. Um, should Jeremy Corbyn be seeking to be an agenda-setter in that area as well, or should he be as he appears to be more hands-off and... Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because tactically I can see that the current Labour approach is actually very smart yeah. because as long as they're not in government, they don't actually have to have a Brexit policy. They just have to have a sort of holding pattern whereby they persuade uh, Leave voters, many of them also Labour voters in those traditional heartlands that we've spoken about, persuade them that... Brexit is happening, that the Labour Party isn't going to somehow renege on that vote, um, while at the same time persuading Remain voters, again, many of whom are also Labour voters, um, that it won't be a basket case Brexit, right, along the lines that the Conservatives are uh, seeming to be heading towards. So I can see this, the tactical wisdom of that holding position. Um, but, but, of course, underneath that, there's all kinds of unanswered questions um, for the Labour Party about Brexit. I often wonder to myself, if you said to the population now, now that, now that there is a left-wing offer in the political spectrum, if you said to people, do you want this redistributive, sort of, let's call it socialist, um, uh, economic policy program that will make your life materially better and also kinder. Do you want that or do you want Brexit, right? I, I, don't, I think some people would still say they want Brexit. You know, I think there'd be a core constituency of people who would 
still say that, it's speculative. Um, but uh, in terms of what Labour can do with its programme within the EU, I think that is also very unclear. Um, the, the, the leadership keeps referring to sort of restrictions um, it, it, staying in the EU and staying in the single market having an effect on the sort of renationalisation and infrastructure projects that, 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 that Labour is planning. I, I actually don't know. Um, obviously, there are countries across Europe that do have state ownership, but I, but I don't know if, if playing it forward, I don't know if you can enter the EU like that, but you can't actually become a, a, a country that has nationalisation while still in the EU. They're all un unanswered questions. Uh, and, and finally, of course, on freedom of movement, um, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's something that, that the party should be abandoning. Um, although, again, I think it's an open question. You could say we will end freedom of movement, but we will have a progressive migration policy that runs along the lines of Canada, right, and not Australia. Um, so... The, just sort of highlighting the, the, the questions that, that, that do exist uh, within uh, Labour's Brexit, although I do think that statistically, tactically, sorry, this holding pattern can probably mm. keep going. Okay. Well, look, I think one thing's for sure, there's a sort of an excitement and a vibrancy around this discussion at the moment, and it's something that uh, is very open for people to participate in, and I'm very grateful for all of you coming and participating today. But before we end, can I ask you to thank Stephen Fisher, Rachel Shabby and Stuart Wood for being our panel today.